Well, I said to the students sitting in my office, the market is impossible, and you are really smart, and your work is really, really good, Kathleen, but I don't know that you want to do this for the rest of your life. The market is really impossible. You need to think hard about entering the ranks of the professorate. Did I mention the market is really impossible? And she said to me, well, Professor Suarez, I, I, I've heard tell that the market is really impossible, but, but I went to this school um, in, in Notre Dame, Indiana, called St. Mary's College, and I had a professor there named Tom Bunnell, and he changed my life. He made me want to give my life to the world of literature and books. And, and the market out there is pretty impossible, but I really want to do this. I want to hazard this. He made me want to make a wager with my happiness. That student was the best doctoral student I had in 10 years teaching at Fordham University. She was the protege of our speaker tonight, Professor Tom Bunnell. Uh, but Tom is not just a masterful teacher. He, he wrote a book which has had a significant bibliographical impact called The Most Disreputable Trade, published by that fly-by-night publisher, Oxford University Press. Um, a, quite a substantial bibliographical volume, a kind of quasi-exhaustive study on the, the trade and reprints of, of poetry and the role of the reprint trade in uh, English canon formation. It's, the book is truly a tour de force. It's also the case that uh, Tom Bunnell has edited volume three of the manuscript of Boswell's Life of Johnson, this uh, four-volume project begun by the estimable uh, Marshall Wainbrow of Happy Memory, uh, continued by Bruce Redford, and um, where his forebears could only manage one volume apiece, Tom has taken on the last two himself, and the fourth one is progressing very well, I hear tell. Um, in 2005, uh, in an article published in Studies in Bibliography, an, an article edited by David Vandermeulen, no doubt, uh, Tom Bunnell published uh, an extremely valuable commentary on William Sinclair's then extremely popular book, The Reading Nation in the Romantic Period, questioning some of the bibliographical foundations of that study. Among the very few people who were adduced in the acknowledgments in line one of the first footnote was a man named Terry Bellinger. Um, so here we have David Vandermeulen, Tom Bunnell, and Terry Bellinger. And um, it, it is the case that that article had a huge impact on the way people understood Sinclair, how they understood the merits of his argument, and how they took um, into deep consideration Tom's caveats about um, the irresponsible way in which um, uh, Sinclair did his, his bibliographical work. Uh, Tom Bunnell is a thoroughgoing humanist. I don't know how many of you know F.P. Locke, but the only thing you really need to know about Professor Locke is he's a reviewer who takes no prisoners. And um, imagine my delight, uh, but not surprise, when Locke, reviewing the most disreputable trade in no less than the Review of English Studies, a journal published by that fly-by-night publisher, Oxford University Press, called the book Humanist Bibliography at its Best, thoroughly researched, clearly presented, and a pleasure to read. Again and again in his work, Tom Bunnell, the teacher, is on display. Again, again in his work, Tom Bunnell, the humanist, is on display. Again and again in his work, Tom Bunnell, 
inspires. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you top. Boy, I don't know that I can live up to that. Thank you so much, Michael, for that very, very generous uh, introduction. And Michael, as you know, is a very modest gentleman. And he neglected to say that I thanked him in that article as well. Um, and I would like to extend one more thank you to Terry Bellinger. In the 1980s, I started receiving all of these flyers with a little lion on them and understood them to represent a rare book school then at Columbia. And working on the, the various collections of poetry, several of which were illustrated and the illustrations were key to marketing the editions. At one point, I thought to myself, maybe I should learn something about how to um, assess 18th century book illustrations. So in 1993, the year Terry had moved the school down, I took his course in book illustration. And uh, I'm, I'm forever grateful for that because it really was invaluable. So thank you again, Terry, for that. Um, now, before I begin, I, I must uh, warn you. My 14-year-old daughter, who's just finishing up eighth grade this week, and who is the creator and uh, viewer of dozens and dozens of PowerPoint presentations, has assured me that the slides you are about to see are the most boring she's ever seen. <laughs> Moreover, because I have failed to choose vibrant colors for the backgrounds and sort of optically kinetic transitions between the slides, I would have points taken off. So puffed up by that endorsement, I'll begin. As the life of Johnson moved through the press, and as Boswell kept on drafting and revising, adding and deleting passages, there were times when he could barely reconstruct his own copy text. The compositor, he confessed, follows my perplexed writing better than I could do myself. Resorting to a hunting metaphor, he viewed the compositor as a sagacious hound. Quote, the stag cannot trace his own doublings, the sagacious hound can find out and follow them all. The stag tosses his horns in vain of his fine legs, bounds away fleet as the wind, regardless of scent, cannot stoop to, to it. The slow hound earnestly and steadily plies his nose. The adverbs earnestly and steadily are too prosaic to capture the effort required to pursue, pursue the zigzagging trail of Boswell's manuscript through thickets of densely revised prose. And while the contrast between a stag bounding away fleet as the wind makes for a nice rhetorical contrast with the slow hound, Boswell himself at times moved forward sluggishly and comfortlessly, and the compositor actually was required to be quick. In their complementary roles, Boswell supplied copy, directed the compositor to take in supplementary documents in the proper places, offered advice on the layout of his printed pages, and revised his text even as he corrected proof. The compositor, in turn, did everything in his power to render the author's work accurately in print, but improvised where ambiguities and contingencies in the copy weakened authorial control. The collaboration that played out between author and compositor was of a depth and complexity to evoke literally the very definition of compositor. The opportunity to analyze this interaction is one of several benefits offered by the Yale edition of James Boswell's Life of Johnson, an edition of the original manuscript in four volumes. A genetic transcription of the manuscript, it traces Boswell's copy text from first draft through multiple stages of revision and last-minute changes in proof. 
It offers a window into the progress of the biography from concept to completion, allowing us to assess the methods and choices it embodies and to appreciate more fully the challenges surmounted in its creation. By illuminating previously hidden aspects of the work's drafting and typesetting, the edition supports Boswell's metaphor of a stag unable to trace his own doublings. The manifestly perplexed writing of the copy reveals the scope of the difficulties of Boswell's task, yielding abundant evidence of intentions gradually fulfilled as well as intentions unmet. These difficulties became difficulties for the compositor. After Samuel Johnson died in December 1784, Boswell's London publisher, eager to capitalize on the moment, asked him how soon he could produce his biography. It was no secret that he was to write Johnson's life and gradually had been preparing to do so, but when asked whether he could finish it within a year, he said no. What he could do on short notice, however, was to publish an account of his travels in Scotland with Johnson. He immediately began revising his journal entries, covering that experience, and in 1785 published the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson, LLD. Publication of the Life would not arrive until May 1791. Over the course of six years, Boswell wrote letters requesting biographical information from those who had known Johnson. Organizing all the papers he harvested could be exhausting. As early as June 22, 1786, having, quote, resolved to sit all day sorting Johnsonian materials, he was distracted by social visits, but afterwards, as recorded in his journal, returned home and sorted till I was stupefied. Along the way, a host of loose ends sent Boswell on errands that became part of his physical existence. Searches for books, documents, and even people complicated the demands of drafting and exhaustively revising his narrative. The manuscript copy finally amounted to this. The main narrative comprises 1,052 quarto leaves, 110 of them now at Houghton Library, the rest in the Beinecke. From the start, Boswell planned to double back to every page. In his first draft, he wrote on the recto of each leaf, saving the facing page, or verso of the previous leaf, for revisions too expansive for marginal or interlinear changes. Another 653 leaves at Yale, with 975 sides written on, are what Boswell called papers apart, drafted separately for insertion where he wanted to elaborate on a topic or an episode. With other documents, including letters and anecdotal recollections, often written by other hands. Aside from these, Boswell sent the printer scores of heavily revised leaves from his journals. Manuscript revisions continued throughout the printing process, as revealed by surviving pages of the first proofs, along with a full set of the second proofs or revises bound in two volumes located in the Hyde Collection at Houghton Library. In December 1790, halfway through the printing of Volume 2, Boswell cheered the printers on. This is very well done indeed. Pray, gentlemen compositors, let me have as much as you can before Christmas. The printer, too, for his part, on occasion called for more copies so the presses would not stand still. And as late as January 1791, only months before publication, the narrative remained incomplete. Until the very end, Boswell was unable to face the harrowing task of drafting an account of Johnson's death. The dynamics of what I have outlined are visible on page 858 of the narrative. Having just introduced the year 1782 in the upper left corner, Boswell was set to incorporate three letters that conveyed little more than a mournful recital of the variations of his illness. One to himself, dated January 5th, and two to Lucy Porter, dated March 5th and March 19th. 
Later, remembering to mention the death of Robert Levitt, a member of Johnson's household, he wrote, then paper apart. And that paper apart would ultimately consist of a letter from Johnson to Dr. Lawrence, a quotation from Johnson's diary, and verses on the death of Dr. Uh, uh, Levitt. Basel later noticed, however, once he had Johnson's letter to Lawrence in hand, that it was dated January 17th, the day Levitt died, prompting him to move this section up the page chronologically to there. So he crosses it out, moves it up, and to do so yet again after coming upon a letter to Mrs. Strong, dated February 4th. So then he moved it up again. At this point, heeding the call for more copy, it seems, he cut the leaf in half. You see, he scissored it off. He sent the top to the printer, recording this fact in the margin, sent to printer thus far, and kept the bottom for further revisions, making a note, 19 March 1782, to maintain his bearings. Letters to Edmund Malone turned up afterwards. Boswell delivered them to the printing house, probably in person, with instructions for the compositor John Plimsel, in whose hand is written, take in two letters to Mr. Malone of Feb 27 and March 2nd. A third hand appearing on the leaf is that of Mr. Self, the corrector, who discovered when reading the first proofs against Boswell's copy that several words had been left out. He bracketed the words and in the margin wrote out. In what follows, I want to focus on the transformation of the biography from manuscript to book primarily through the eyes of the compositor, John Plimsoll an intelligent and accurate man in Boswell's characterization. He figures in the story from start to finish, though a second compositor, Mr. Manning, worked alongside Plimsoll from September 1790 to January 1791, and hence the plural in Boswell's note to the gentleman compositors in December 1790. Apart from the vagaries of its delivery to the printing house, the manuscript presented the compositor with a host of challenges stemming from imperfections in the copy, imperfections that often forced the compositor to assume a limited local authority over the text. The exercise of this authority, uh, contingent authority, arose from the need to address several kinds of defect. First, random errors in Boswell's prose caused by haste, such as missing words or lapses in grammar. Second, optional words and phrases with no indication whether they were to be included or deleted, decisions Boswell had neglected to settle in revision. Third, alternate words and phrases planted in the original draft for later consideration, but again, overlooked in revision and left unresolved. Fourth, puzzling revisions, which left the intended reading unclear. And fifth, gaps in the copy, such as missing footnotes, or unfilled blank spaces where additional copy text had to be supplied, sometimes by means of Boswell's dictation. Given that the remedies for these defects involve varying degrees of judgment, the sorts of contingent authority that can be ascribed to the compositor suggest a gradient or sliding scale. Random errors were easily fixed. The compositor filled in the obvious word omitted by Boswell or corrected grammatical slips. The, um, as for unresolved optional words and phrases, the compositor routinely incorporated them. That principle of conservation could not be applied, however, to unresolved alternatives, where the compositor often had to select one wording over another. Puzzling revisions in the worst cases led to guesswork on the compositor's part and syntactical improvisation. Finally, Gaps in the copy required Boswell's remediation in nearly all cases, except in one, where the compositor was invited to draft his own copy. (laughs) 
When Boswell praised his compositor for being a sagacious hound, his metaphor was founded on an old sense of the adjective sagacious. Quick of scent is how Johnson defined it in his dictionary, and one of the quotations he chose to illustrate this usage specifically evoked the powers of a hound. With might and main, they chased the murderous fox, nor wanted horns to inspire the sagacious hounds. The OED elaborated the definition, acute in perception, especially by the sense of smell, and marked it obsolete in that usage. Retaining Johnson's quotation of Dryden, the OED added a second quotation about a sagacious hound. In the choice of conceit, Boswell was in good literary company. The compositor was indeed quick of scent, surprisingly so, given the speed of the chase and the density of the undergrowth in a manuscript that was the antithesis of fair copy. If the trail was lost here and there along the way, that was inevitable in view of what Bruce Redford has called the foulest of foul papers. To witness stag and hound in action, I invite you now to look at the larger of the sheets in my handout. And Carl, could we have the house lights, please? Thank you. One shows manuscript leaf 564, with revisions spilling onto the verso of leaf 563. And the other shows the corresponding pages as printed in the revises. At the top of leaf 564, the very first line, Boswell is wishing that there had been a catalogue raisonné of character portraits by Johnson, whose knowledge of diverse individuals and knack for drawing strong yet nice portraits of them would have produced a rich fund of instruction and entertainment. To round off the paragraph, he quoted Johnson. This is about halfway down that paragraph toward the right. It is wonderful, sir, what is to be found in London, the most literary conversation that I have ever enjoyed was at the table of Jack Ellis, a money scrivener behind the Royal Exchange. As Boswell extended the quotation, this Mr. Ellis, he suddenly changed course. He rewrote these words, this Mr. Ellis, to start a footnote he would finish much later, jotted himself a reminder in the left-hand margin to see this at Sewell's, left open the space, and went on to his next paragraph. A curious incident happened. In revision, wanting to elaborate on Johnson's wide knowledge of humankind, Boswell situated a circled cross or X just above the curious incident paragraph, planted the counterpart to this symbol near the top of the facing page, and started a new paragraph. Volumes would be required to contain the variety of his acquaintance. He did not finish this paragraph at once, but at the top of the page listed several names eligible for mention in the parade of Johnson's wide acquaintance. Lady Craven, Lord McCartney, Countess of Harrington, Mrs. Gardner, the Tallow Chandler. He deleted this roster later after completing the paragraph. By the time he did so, he had to squeeze his new copy and revisions to the earlier copy into tightly written lines in the middle of the page and up and down the margins. His space was restricted because, meanwhile, he had started yet another paragraph in perpendicular lines at the bottom of the page. This insertion was keyed to the symbol we call a hashtag, located on leaf 564 above and to the left of his first symbol. This other new paragraph, spawned by the topic of Johnson learning about literature from Mr. Ellis, focused on individuals whom Johnson regarded as teachers. Quote, at another time, he told me, I learned what I know of law chiefly from Mr. Barlow. And this paragraph led Boswell to draft a short paper apart, beginning with another quotation 
My knowledge of physics I learnt from Dr. James. Judging then by the placement of symbols and the sequencing of the introductory phrases he once observed to me, followed by at another time, he told me, Boswell wanted to present in close order the insights Johnson had absorbed in literature, law, and medicine from Mr. Ellis, Mr. Ballow, and Dr. James, culminating in a grand summary of the topic, the paragraph beginning, volumes would be required. But that paragraph about Johnson's numerous and varied acquaintance initially had been inserted as a commentary on Johnson's diverse character portraits, and the new sequence disrupted that connection. Now in the revises on page 54, you can see the original sequence had been restored. This is a paragraph indentation at the bottom of page 54. One of two things had happened, I'm guessing. One possibility is that Boswell had reorganized the sequence in person. A discussion of these pages is evident from his instruction to Plimsoll, written in Plimsoll's hand on leaf 564 to, and this is middle of the page in tiny handwriting within brackets, to leave room for four lines of note. That's the note on Mr. Ellis. The other possibility is that Plimsoll, in this case, was unable to trace the stag and misunderstood the order. Either way, as shown in the revises, page 55, the first paragraph indentation, it had become necessary to revise the opening sentence to the paragraph on Mr. Ballow, as its connection to the example of Mr. Ellis had now been broken. The topic of Johnson learning things from various men had to be reintroduced. On my expressing my wonder at his discovering so much of the knowledge peculiar to different professions, and now he's, he's ready to get back to Ballow. One final detail on Leaf 564 deserves attention. That memorandum, see this at Sewell's. John Sewell was a printer, bookseller, and bookbinder with shop at number 32 Cornhill, near Ellis's former haunt behind the Royal Exchange. Boswell visited him on June 8, 1790, recording in his journal, quote, I was as far as Mr. Sewell's in Cornhill to get some little information for Johnson's life. Hundreds of such pieces of trouble have I been obliged to take in the course of the printing. The substance and tenor of this entry suggest that this particular errand, along with the flurry of other efforts it took to revise Leaf 564, became in Boswell's mind paradigmatic of one of his virtues as a biographer. In his advertisement to the first edition, he reflected on the degree of trouble necessitated by his standard of scrupulous authenticity, recounting that he would run half over London to settle various inquiries. The footnote on Mr. Ellis, which you see on page 54, required more space than anticipated. 13 lines, not four. Once Boswell had interviewed him, coming away with two leaves of jottings, Boswell explicitly commemorated the, the occasion within the note. Quote, he is now a very old man. I have visited him this day, October 4th, 1790, in his 93rd year. And in the second edition, he had to add a sentence. He died on the 31st of December, 1791. At your leisure, if interested, you can examine the other pages of the handout to see how I transcribed and annotated this passage in volume three. Without going into detail on the method of transcription, I would simply say that the protocol was devised by Marshall Wainegrow to reveal the stages of revision. All copy transcribed within brackets was at one stage a reading as Boswell left it. Transcription within brackets a second time signals that the copy underwent an intermediate stage of revision. 
followed by later revision or revisions. Wherever the copy breaks free of the brackets, it represents Boswell's final revision. Same draft changes are recorded in endnotes. These words and phrases rejected on the fly never constituted an eligible reading for the copy. The rest of my examples involve passages that have cropped up in my work just recently in the last few months and will appear in volume four. They afford a fairly representative sampling of what the com compositor dealt with routinely. Carl, could we have the house lights down again, please? Thank you. This is Leaf 8, 840. One day, Johnson visited the Bishop of Killaloe, of whom he said, as originally drafted, no man ever, and now we're at the top of the leaf, no man ever paid more attention to another than he has done to me. And I have neglected, I had neglected, and Basel resolved it, I have neglected him not willfully, but from being otherwise occupied. Always value spontaneous kindness. He who is fond of you of his own accord, or is fond of you himself, will love you more than one whom you have been at pains to attach to you. The virgules on either side of to you mark it as optional. That was Boswell's signal. Ordinarily, Boswell and revision would either delete the virgules to incorporate the phrase or score through the entire construction to reject it. When optional elements he were, as here, left unresolved, the compositor usually included them. The resolution of alternatives in this sentence, the, those alternatives, is of interest because the choice that appealed to Boswell triggered a revision of the phrase leading into it, a revision better suited to culminate in of his own accord. So he starts over here and he's going to change it, he who's, and he changed who to S-E, he who's, and then he saw there's no room for what I want to write, so he flipped to the facing page. He whose inclination prompts him to cultivate your friendship of his own accord will love you more than one whom you have been at pains to attach to you. So there you see Boswell's um, uh, revision at work. <clears throat> the ensuing paragraph provides an example of Plimsoll executing revisions at Boswell's behest, either implicitly or explicitly. Originally, the entire paragraph formed a quotation. I was once, and then he added, said he, I was once, said he, much pleased to find that a carpenter who lived near me was very ready to show me something in his business, which I wished to see. It, it was showing respect to literature. Later, changing the verb showing to paying respect, Boswell decided to limit the quotation to the last sentence and revised the beginning of the first sentence accordingly. Johnson told me that he was once much pleased, and so forth. Plimsoll took over from here. Whether he received oral instructions from Boswell or gleaned what to do from the cryptic marginal markings, and I haven't seen those anywhere else, does that mean take the quotation away down to here, uh, who knows. Um, he finished the rest of the needed alterations. Him, uh, me to him again, which he wished to see. It was paying, said he, respect to literature. So all of those are in Plimsoll's hand. On leaf 853, the compositor came upon an unresolved alternative wording in Boswell's account of visiting Lord Butte's estate, Luton Hoe, with Johnson. Prior to revision, Johnson says, and we're, we're beginning right here, 
This is one of the places I do not regret coming to see or having come to see, and Flimsel chose having come to see, just had to decide. It is a very stately house. It is a magnificent house. It is a very stately place indeed. <laughs> so there are three wordings there. Now, depending on whether he used house or not, there's an optional. In the house, and then capital M, magnificence is not sacrificed to convenience nor convenience to magnificence. So in revision, Boswell decides he's not going with house, he's going with place. It is a very stately place indeed. So now he deletes his virgule, so he wants that in. In the house, magnificence is not sacrificed to convenience, nor convenience to magnificence. Now, now we're back on first draft prose, original. The library is very splendid, period. You can't see it there. The quantity of pictures is beyond expectation, beyond hope, comma, and the dignity. Now here, Boswell pulled up short, realizing that he had just written the phrase that would make the best rhetorical climax, beyond expectation, beyond hope. He backtracked to insert what he was on the verge of writing. The dignity of the rooms is very great, period. So that the successive clauses grew longer and more rhythmic in cadence. The full stop after great suggests that for a moment Boswell wanted the first two clauses to form their own sentence and the sentence about pictures to remain separate, but then he combined them by inserting the ampersand. Plimzo punctuated the sequence with semicolons between each clause. A very curious example of an unresolved alternative crops up in an anecdote drafted for Boswell by Charles Burney, the musicologist. The story involved a friend of Dr. Burney's who, and now here I won't try to uh, keep you following, but I'll just listen to the anecdote to uh, understand the, uh, the set of alternatives that Bernie included in the anecdote. Friend of Bernie who had conceived such a reverence for Johnson that he urgently begged Dr. B to give him the cover of the first letter he had received from him as a relic of so estimable a writer. In 1760, when Dr. B visited Dr. J at the temple in London, where he had then chambers, he happened to arrive before he was up, and being shown into the room where he was to breakfast, finding himself alone, he examined the contents of the apartment to try whether he could, undiscovered, steal anything <laughs> to send to his friend as another relic of the admirable Dr. Johnson. But finding nothing better to his purpose, he cut some bristles off his hearth broom and enclosed them in a letter to his country enthusiast, who received them with due reverence. Johnson was so sensible of the honor done him that he said to Dr. B, Sir, there is no man possessed of the smallest portion of modesty, but must be flattered with the admiration of such a man. I'll give him a set of my lives, if he will do me the honor to accept of them. In this he kept his word, and Dr. B not only had the pleasure of gratifying his friend with a present more worthy of his acceptance than, in the alternative that I'm about to say, than that portion from the hearth room, but soon after of introducing him to Dr. Johnson himself. So, excuse me, that's the second page. There we go. So the lives of the poets was going to be a present more worthy of his acceptance than the segment or the scission from the hearth room. Bernie supplied himself with these alternatives in the way Boswell did throughout the life, reserving that textual choice apparently for a day that never arrived. Had Boswell reviewed the anecdote sentence by sentence, doubtless he would have made a decision. Instead, he converted a few abbreviations to full spelling at the beginning and end of the story, but left it to Plimsoll to manage the rest, instructing him, quote, be sure to put Bernie, not B, and Johnson, not J, throughout. What to call the cutting from Johnson's hearth broom then most likely fell to Plimsoll, 
who cautiously favored the familiar over the unfamiliar, the word on the line rather than its interlineated alternative. He missed his chance to authorize a noun that seems otherwise to have escaped notice. As defined by Johnson, the act of cutting and the OED, the action of cutting something, scission encompasses only the act. It does not refer to the cutting that results from it, as in Bernie's use or near use, so far as I can make out. Um, so that would have been nice had Boswell selected it. As far as gaps in Boswell's copy are concerned, or Plimsoll, I should say, since it fell to him, as far as gaps in Boswell's copy are concerned, one example represents many such throughout the manuscript. In this case, a missing footnote. A letter from Johnson to Thomas Astle, a writer on English antiquities, called for a footnote on one sentence. Your notes on Alfred uh, appear to me very judicious and accurate, but they are too few. Planting a footnote symbol after notes, Boswell at the bottom of the page directed the compositor to, to see note on next leaf. All that Plimsoll saw on that leaf was the symbol for a footnote right there. The writing in due course was Plimsoll's own and he must have called Boswell to his side for dictation because that's the only way he could have come up with it. Another sort of gap or lacuna in the manuscript was a blank space where the copy was left open for information to be provided later. Two moments of this nature arose on paper apart leaf 904, one of them a garden variety example, the other quite exceptional. And this anecdote has to do with Mr. Manning, the second compositor. No man was more ready to make an apology when he had uh, censured unjustly than Johnson. When one of the proof sheets of his life, no, that's wrong. When a proof sheet of his lives of the poets, no, I don't even know that. When a proof sheet of one of his works was and there everything broke down. He decided, I've got to go find this out. Um, amidst this uncertainty, the anecdote broke, broke down, proceeded no farther. When later resumed, its length demanded that less space be wasted between lines, and the lines were packed in ever more tightly as the bottom of the page neared. On closer inspection, we note also that the initial handwriting is not Boswell's. Presumably, he was dictating when he reached an impasse, unable to finish the story without recovering more details, probably from the person it centered on, Mr. Manning, the second compositor put to work on the life in September 1790. The anecdote resumes in Boswell's hand but I'll pick it up from the start of the sentence. When a proof sheet of one of his works was brought to him, uh, let's see, he found fault with the mode of printing, then he stops, with the mode in which a part of it was arranged, refused to read it, and in a passion desired that the compositor, it's going to be a footnote there, might be sent to, sent to him. The compositor was Mr. Manning, a decent, sensible man who had print, no, not printed, who had composed about one half of his dictionary when at Mr. Strong's printing house, done, or did, no, and uh, a great part of his lives of the poets when in Mr. Nichols's printing house, and now when, uh, when in his blank year, printed 77th, had to be filled in, when in Mr. Baldwin's printing house, and it gets pretty, um, has composed, no, has done, no, has composed a part of this work concerning him, meaning the life of Johnson. By producing the manuscript, he at once, he, Manning, at once satisfied Dr. Johnson that he underscored, 
and the under for italics, and that was missed, so the word isn't italicized. That he was not to blame, upon which John uh, Johnson candidly and earnestly said to him, Mr. Compositor, I ask your pardon. Mr. Compositor, I ask your pardon again and again. Since the anecdote turns on Johnson's apology with its repetition of Mr. Compositor, it is interesting to find Boswell catching himself in the use of colloquialisms for the verb compose and trying to be more precise. Composed instead of printed, composed in place of done. Boswell's own deference to the vital work of the compositor produced the second of the gaps I want to call your attention to on this leaf. It comes in that footnote. A compositor, and Plimsoll either didn't see the A there or decided it shouldn't be there to begin with. Compositor in the art of printing means... Now here, Boswell drew a line and he said, explain it neatly. <laughs> Boswell left the definition in expert hands, telling the compositor as I say, to explain it neatly. In the revises, the note was printed as follows. Compositor in the printing house means the person who adjusts the types in the order in which they are to stand for printing and arranges what is called the form from which an impression is taken. And if you wonder why the word typesetting is absent from this definition, the OED records its earliest use in 1846 and the earliest use of the word typesetter in 1867. Baldwin's printing house would definitely have had a copy of Johnson's dictionary. And we know from a query in the margin of the revises that it was invoked to settle an inconsistency in the spelling of the word jail. Obviously, the compositor did not need to check the dictionary to learn how to define his labor, but it's tempting to imagine him looking up the word out of curiosity or to help him keep his own definition neat, that is, clean and pure. Comparison of the definitions will not decide the question, but there are suggestive similarities. Compositor, he that ranges and adjusts the types in printing, distinguished from the pressman who makes the impression upon paper. Now, that use of range is a little unusual. To place in order, to put in ranks. And then the verb to compose, the ninth sense for printing. To arrange the letters, to put the letters in order in the forms. And then to arrange, to put in the proper order for any purpose. The similarities in definition may simply mirror Johnson's familiarity with the work of a printing house. It is conceivable, however, that Plimsoll consulted the dictionary and saw that a refinement was called for, at least in the definition of compositor, and separated Johnson's key terms, uh, ranges and adjusts, to reflect the two-step process of first adjusting the types and then arranging the form. Now, in, the, in his definition of to compose, Johnson does have sort of the two steps to arrange the letters and then to put the letters in order in the forms. To return to the anecdote in light of all this, I confess to being somewhat mystified by the cause of the misunderstanding. If Johnson found fault with the mode in which a part of it was arranged, refused to read it, and in a passion took up the issue with the compositor, it seems to have been something that was obvious from a glance. And yet, by producing the manuscript, Manning at once satisfied Dr. Johnson that he was not to blame. Now, what aspect of Johnson's own manuscript could he have forgotten such that its mode of arrangement in print infuriated him at first sight without even having to read it? Uh, maybe if you have an idea, let me know during the reception because I'd, I'd be interested to hear it. At the very outset, after Boswell had corrected his very first proof sheet 
and then in second proof discovered an error, he communicated his satisfaction and corrected it in optimism to the compositor. How lucky it is that I have this uh, revise. I trust we shall have a very correct book. All things considered, he did, given the magnitude of the book and the vagaries of its career through the printing house. The compositors who saw the life of Johnson into print were handed a Herculean task. Boswell was well served by them, heroically well served. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. So, 
Well, in my use of the, the word limited local authority, and I was, I didn't belabor it, but when I use that word, I'm trying to suggest all, all aspects of the word author have to be part of it. So that in certain readings, it's Plimsoll who's authorizing the reading that's going to stand in print. Um, he takes on that authority and becomes the author of that, that particular reading. Now, in terms of collaboration, Bruce, uh, Bruce Redford has, talks a lot about that in his live lecture, so I didn't want to talk a great deal about that, and I took, took a, a paragraph about collaboration out of the talk, but obviously, um, I tried to suggest it in, uh, in suggesting where, where Boswell has some ideas that he's sharing with the compositor on maybe the look of a page and how the compositor is constantly deferring to Boswell for um, illuminations on certain things. And either the either, either Plumsville or the corrector, at one point, when one of Johnson's letters to Mrs. Thrale is being um, quoted, the compositor thinks that part of the letter actually shouldn't be quoted because it should not be presumed that Johnson would say something indelicate to a lady. And so the compositor took it upon himself to advise Boswell against writing what he had written, in that case, in a footnote. He had taken out the passage from the letter, but then he was unable to resist suggesting what he had taken out. And even at that remove of generality, the compositor thought that's going too far. And you see Boswell actually in response to that then, working on that footnote to make it less objectionable along the lines the compositor had suggested. So yes, it's collaborative at all levels. Can you speak to interactions between authors and compositors um, aside from um, this example and how common that was during the period? Oh, I would think that this was pretty uncommon. Uh, the just how how difficult that manuscript was to deal with, and the patience really, and the what is your evidence? Oh, good good point there. I don't know. Dickens and his compositors. Yeah, I haven't seen any bad. Every bit is bad. Every bit is bad. The, it was so bad that the compositors took revised galleys and reset them from scratch because it was faster than making the corrections. <laughs> so yes, so the answer to that is I don't know. I mean, I know this instance very well, but I can't generalize. I think, that's, I think it's a challenge because when you're working on author's manuscripts, it takes so long to master a body of material to learn their practices, and I think it's mm -hmm. um, it's something that you, you do very you can do deeply, but it's hard. And it's interesting to think about like uh, broadening those studies. And I think it's, I don't know how many people have been able to do that simply because of the time it takes to develop the expertise that you've developed and demonstrated. Because you do you do begin to develop a sense of the habits yeah, and what, exactly. what he what he's doing, and you can you can identify it and um, recognize something that you see again. Right. Yes. Did you know if the compositor was being compensated for this extra time, or was he still being paid? I, I Yeah, I have. Most compositors in the 19th century were paid by what they were published. There were certainly accommodations. At least like this, I'm sure. My suspicion is that the compositor would have ended up essentially getting paid a salary rather than an hourly, because there was no other way to do it. But a very valuable work from you. Right. Yeah, and I, I don't know whether actually whether that is exists. I'll have to consider it. It is the case that now we all know how to read the poster. <laughs> Please join me in thanking God.